You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. It's almost uh, painful this morning to have to talk about, after we've been singing about the goodness and the mercy and the beauty and the perfection of Christ, to be talking about things that are the opposite end of the extreme, but uh, need to continue on with what we started last week. Way back in the middle of the first century, the Apostle Peter warned us, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Last week, I talked about a pair of uh, religious charlatans that we need to be wary of and discerning about. And uh, these were the false prophets and the the wolf in sheep's clothing. And uh, fortunately, we've seen both of those in a number of churches we've been part of in the past and seen the destruction they do and i declared that these people are frauds and charlatans who deceive the people to use jesus words slightly modified both of them are deadly enemies of your soul they wreak havoc and destruction on the unprepared and the uninformed sadly as i said i've seen the pain they've caused and my intention here today and last week is to do whatever i can to protect you from that sort of harm here in City Edge or in whatever church you may be a part of in years to come. The best way to do that is to show you some of the warnings in Scripture about these charlatans and look at how they manifest their evil within the modern church, and it is evil. John chapter 7, if you'd like to open up there, especially verse 12 was the catalyst for these couple of messages. You'll recall that John 7 starts with Jesus brothers challenging him to go up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths and to demonstrate his miracles up there. Jesus holds back for a few days, as we know, and then he goes up secretly, arriving in the middle of the week-long celebration. We pick it up in verse 10 of John 7. Uh, But after this, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. Some translations put verse 12, some argued he's a good man, but others said he's nothing but a fraud who deceives the people. And some were saying Jesus is a good man, while others were saying he's lying to everyone. Now, when I first started preparing these messages a few weeks or so ago, I thought there were only two types of deceivers that we needed to be wary of and uh, that needed to be confronted. But before I was done with last week's message, I realised that there were at least four. And then while I was working on on this week's message, I, I can think of five that are rife in the modern church and they're not only exercising their destruction with little resistance, but they're being celebrated even by huge numbers of churchgoers and Christians. And that's to say nothing of the false messiahs and the pseudo-Christian cults that are so prevalent today. They, They are usually a little bit easier to spot for anyone who's got a reasonable understanding 
of uh, what Orthodox Christianity is because their teachings are quite out of step. But my concern today is the ones that look like real Christianity, the deceivers who have taken a portion of scripture or a certain truth and blown it all out of proportion until it becomes a heresy and a deadly heresy too. One of the greatest dangers that's invaded our churches recently is something that's become known as moralistic therapeutic deism. You may never have heard of that term, moralistic therapeutic deism. It's rampant in the modern church. It's exceptionally popular today. And the majority of Christian TV seems to be moral therapeutic deism. The best known purveyor of MTD, I'll call it for short, leads the largest church in North America with more than 40,000 people turning up every week for the services. He's immensely popular and he's hugely successful. His books top bestseller lists. His TV broadcasts of his motivational messages, and I say motivational messages deliberately because I don't believe they're sermons. His TV broadcasts reach nearly 20 million people in over 100 countries. This guy is popular. Of course, he generously no longer collects his $200,000 pastor's salary that he's entitled to. His royalties from his books, most notably a book called Your Best Life Now, which I'm sure you've heard of, far exceed his $200,000 salary. So he doesn't need that anymore. His net worth is estimated at $50 million. This is a church pastor. $50 million dollars net worth it's hard to square that with the picture of wealth that picture of wealth and opulence with what we read in the bible of suffering and persecution and deprivation that the early church faced it's hard to square it with the suffering and persecution and deprivation that the bible promises to the followers of christ for those who've never heard of MTD, Moral Therapeutic Deism, it basically consists of five beliefs. Firstly, there is, there is a God who created the world and he watches over human life on earth. This God wants people to be good, to be nice and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible, but also as taught in most of the world's major religions. The central goal, the third point, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. The fourth point is God doesn't need to be particularly involved in your life, except when you need him to resolve a problem. And the fifth and final point is that good people go to heaven when they die. Now, this philosophy is moralistic because it declares that good people go to heaven because they are good people. It's totally divorced from the work of the cross and it's totally divorced from the grace of God. It is, in fact, a religion of works. It is therapeutic because it's all about what God can do to make me feel better, to make me happy. Our greatest problem is the negative feelings we have about ourselves, not the negative righteousness we have before God. It's deism because... It proclaims a God who is hands-off. He exists, to be sure, but he's distant. 
He's uninvolved and is certainly not relational like the Christian God. There are so many problems with this philosophy, but I'll start with number five. Good people go to heaven. Quite apart from what the Bible says about heaven and hell, who decides whether you've been good enough to go to heaven? Is there some standard you have to meet? Or do we each get to decide for ourselves whether we've been good? If that's the case, I doubt whether there'll be very many people who miss out on heaven because everyone thinks they're good. But what will you do if you get to heaven and after after you've been a hard worker and a kind person and a loving husband or wife all your life and you meet the neighbour that you know was a wife beater and a cheat, who was an alcoholic who wasted all the grocery money and left his kids to go hungry. Would you be disgusted? Would you be outraged to find him there? But I bet you he thought he was good. If he gets to decide if he's good enough, he'll be there. How do you find what is good or what is good enough? I'm reminded of a significant 20th century character. You'll know fairly quickly who I'm talking about. A man who lifted his country out of economic depression and despair in the 20s and 30s. A man who restored scientific research and manufacturing and business and agriculture to his country. A man who embarked on great infrastructure projects that provided full employment for the population. This man commissioned the design and the manufacture of what became the world's most popular car, the, most, the best-selling car, a car affordable and economical and reliable enough to sit in many garages, including in mine when I was a teenager. That cheap and cheerful car designed way, way back then made its manufacturer one of the largest car conglomerate, conglomerates in the world today. And it spawned one of the most desirable sports cars of the last 60 years. This man was responsible for rapid advances in aircraft design and rocket technology that we get benefits from today. And the surge of development in his country stimulated research and development in every advanced nation on earth. The whole world is better and more wealthy in ways that can be traced back to this man. Is that good enough to qualify him for heaven? But does all that good outweigh the devastation of the war he waged, the destruction of entire cities, the death of as many as 80 million people, most of whom were innocent victims, the deliberate extermination of 6 million Jews, to say nothing of homosexuals and the disabled, locked up, tortured and murdered at his command? Who gets to decide if Adolf Hitler is good enough to go to heaven? Does all the good that resulted from that outweigh the evil he committed? If Adolf Hitler was questioned, I'd say he would think I'm good enough to go to heaven. You can see the absurdity of that position when you put it in such stark terms and when you think it through to its logical conclusion. The deism part of MTD acknowledges that God made everything, that he is the creator. But like the divine watchmaker concept of years gone by, this God created the universe like a fine Swiss watch, wound the spring up and then sat back and let it wind itself out. 
sat back in his armchair to read a good book and watch Home and Away. This God has no particular interest in being involved in the world. We should be able to work out most problems on our own. If we really need help, he'll jump in and help us out. But only if we need him. He is, after all, a gentleman he wouldn't want to impose. The God of moral therapeutic deism is perfect for us self-absorbed humans. This God is harmless. He's unthreatening. He's non-judgmental. He's accepting of anything we think or say or do. He's a bit like your doddery old granddad who's too nice to say anything harsh to you. But he's nothing like the God of the Bible. At its heart, moral therapeutic deism is a feel-good self-help message. It's the sort of message you'll find in best-selling books in the personal development and relationship shelves of a Barnes & Noble bookstore. Titles like The Power of Positive Thinking, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, How to Win Friends and Influence People, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, You Can Heal Your Life, or the aforementioned Your Best Life Now. It's also commonly heard in sermons from church pulpits, and especially from those churches that have exploded in growth in the recent decades to tens of thousands of pew warmers every service. These sermons come with titles like How to Deal with Difficult People, Five Keys to a Better Marriage, Good Things Are Waiting for You, How to Stop Worry or Guilt Stealing Your Joy, A Fresh New Attitude You Weren't Created, to live uptight, bitter or depressed. One thing they all have in common is that they don't require anything of the gospel or of Christian faith to implement. They're full of good ideas. In fact, that uh, particular exponent of the MTD message begins his messages every Sunday with a funny story and then he invites everyone to hold their Bibles up and uh, while the few actually bring a Bible to church with them, hold it up in the air, he gets them to repeat after him, this is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today, I will be taught the word of God. I boldly confess my mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same. In Jesus' name. And that will probably be the last time the Bible gets referred to in his message. Because his messages don't really need the Bible. The Bible is just a useful prop to hang his message on. In fact, sometimes the Bible gets in the way of the message. After all, we all know the Bible's full of yucky stories that people don't like to hear or read. Make no mistake, the moral therapeutic days and message can be good advice. They can be helpful. That's why they're so popular. But none of them can address the greatest need of humanity, our sin and our alienation from God. Al Mohler writes, this is not the God who thunders from the mountain like we read about in Exodus, nor a God who will serve as judge. This undemanding deity is more interested in solving our problems and in making people happy. 
rather than speak of a God who thunders from the mountain, many Christians and many preachers prefer to abandon too much talk about God and abandon any mention of sin or guilt or evil or hell, lest they make people feel uncomfortable, unless they hurt people's self-esteem. God help us snowflakes if we ever have to hear anything that makes us feel bad. And horror of horrors, what if other people think we're being judgmental and intolerant and you name it, phobic? It seems the only true sin in the church today is to be too certain about your biblical convictions and too willing to talk to other people about it. Just ask Israel Falau. Any talk about God must be kept vague and abstract so no one is hurt. Michael Horton warns that when we're unable to preach Christ, we preach humanity and its improvement. And that's exactly what the MTD message is. The rejection of biblical truth and biblical values leaves us with no avenue to pursue except self-improvement, which in previous generations would have been called legalism or Pelagianism. The idea that we're capable within ourselves of improving ourselves enough that we would be approved by God for salvation. This has always been fatal to the Christian and it's fatal to Christian churches. No church can adopt the philosophy of MTD and remain true to the gospel. It's not possible. Sadly, though, it's increasingly the, the message of the modern church. Someone needs to ring a warning bell. In the end, it won't matter how well sorted out your life and your relationships are if you haven't dealt with your relationship with God. It won't matter if you have your best life now if you miss out on the true best life after. They're frauds and charlatans who deceive the people. I'd be doing you a disservice if I were to follow their path. We could probably grow City Edge Church with moral therapeutic days and messages because they're so popular people want to hear them. But I'd have to answer to the Lord for the destruction of your soul on that final judgment day. The gospel message must be permeated with Christ, with his sufficiency, with his perfection, with his beauty, with his holiness. It must be permeated with our imperfection and our sin but his grace and his mercy. That's the gospel message. It's not the gospel if it doesn't have that. One of the topics that came up in our post-video discussion recently at our Bible school was about the prosperity gospel. It's also known as word of faith or name it and claim it. Let me say up front where I stand on the prosperity gospel so you can decide now whether to hear me out or whether to shut your ears. The prosperity gospel is no gospel at all. In fact, the prosperity gospel is anti-gospel. Many of my good friends 
And if these friends were listening to this, I think they would probably tune out now. But many of my good friends are convinced of this prosperity gospel, convinced that it's true. But I've got to say it again. Prosperity gospel is not the gospel. The prosperity gospel, also known as a health and wealth gospel or message, is a perversion and a corruption of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a message that insists God rewards faith with health and wealth in this life. It maintains that one of the results of your salvation should be a healed body, a healthy body, and financial success. It is your divine right to have those things. Any remaining sickness or poverty after you have asked Jesus into your heart is evidence, therefore, of one of a number of things, and none of them are good. It's evidence that you're not really a Christian. You only think you are, or you're only pretending, or you're deceived. Or maybe you were a Christian, but now you've lost your salvation. Now you're not entitled to these things anymore. Or maybe it's evidence that you are a Christian, but you're so immature that you don't yet understand this truth. Or it might be evidence that you're in sin and so you don't deserve healing. Or it could be that you're still trapped in legalism and bondage. You're not walking in freedom. You're not claiming your rightful inheritance. Or it might be evidence that you don't have enough faith. You need more. That last one is tough. Have you ever tried to drum up your faith? I haven't. I've yet to learn how to do it successfully. Pray more, get out on the streets evangelising people, read the Bible more, give up your favourite foods, get up at four in the morning to spend time with God, listen harder to him, believe more. Let me tell you, this quickly leads to exhaustion, frustration and disillusionment. It's caused untold numbers of people to turn their back on Christ because you can't just increase your faith on demand. Faith doesn't work that way. It's plunged many people deeper into poverty as they try to give their way out of their circumstances. If I just give more to God, he will give me more. But usually that means giving to the preacher or giving to the church or giving to the ministry that's promoting this false gospel. But God is not a transactional God. He doesn't have a stall set up at the market selling his wares to the highest bidder. And anyway, you do realise, don't you, that poverty is not a sin. Pain is not a sin. In fact, poverty and pain are just about the only two things Jesus did promise his followers. But the popularity of this prosperity gospel shouldn't be any surprise to us. Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, Understand this, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. The people will be lovers of self. They'll be lovers of money. They'll be proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. Have you seen any of that? They'll come wearing gospel clothes and boasting titles like Pastor This and Bishop That and Dr. So-and-so. Having the appearance of godliness, Paul writes, but denying its power. 
avoid such people. The power they offer sounds attractive, but it is not true power. Their power only offers earthly trinkets. Their power cannot change a hard heart. Their power cannot wash away sin. Their power cannot grant eternal salvation. Their power is powerless. But really, who cares what the Bible says anymore? The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. These preachers will tickle your ears exactly as much as you want your ears to be tickled. So how do you identify these ear ticklers that would lead you astray? In 2014, John Piper outlined six keys to detecting the prosperity gospel. He said, first up, the absence of a serious doctrine of the biblical necessity and the biblical normalcy of suffering. The absence of a doctrine of suffering. You'll not hear anything of suffering as a normal and expected part of Christian living from prosperity gospel preachers. In fact, they'll most likely tell you the exact opposite. And because of that, they have no comfort to offer the suffering. Nothing except empty promises and lies. Secondly, Piper says the absence of a clear and prominent doctrine of self-denial is a tip-off that something is amiss. They'll also encourage you to go for all the trappings of wealth and success. After all, if what they're preaching is true, why should you deny yourself anything? You want that new high-paying job? Name it and claim it. You want that Porsche? It's yours in Jesus' name. There's nothing to rein in your greed. God exists for the purpose of giving you whatever you want. Thirdly, Piper says, there's the absence of serious exposition of Scripture. You rarely hear any in-depth study of Scripture. In fact, many of them consciously reject the use of the Bible in their preaching. They pay at lip service, to be sure, but the best they will pluck out only the verses that suit the message they have. You won't hear the whole counsel of God from the lips of a prosperity gospel preacher. It doesn't matter how long you listen to them. Fourthly, Piper says there's the absence of dealing with tensions in Scripture. If you've read much of your Bible, you know there's stuff in there that's hard to work out. There's tensions. How does this Scripture fit with that one? Their message is so simplistic that they rarely wrestle with any of the difficulties the Bible presents. Will they make a serious effort to understand and explain how these passages that seem contradictory actually fit together? If they don't, they're doing nothing to prepare followers for how to think about Scripture, how to understand Scripture, how to apply it to their lives with all the challenges it faces and contains. Fifthly, Piper says, you can pick it by church leaders that have exorbitant lifestyles. I don't need to say very much about this. I'm sure you can all think of plenty that fit the bill. Multi-million dollar salaries. 
enormous mansions, expensive cars, private jets, luxury yachts, $200 t-shirts, $2,000 shoes, $10,000 suits. You've seen it all, I'm sure. They're parasites that suck the life out of the gullible and the needy and the desperate. As Jesus said, you've already had all the comfort you will get. There's nothing more for them to look forward to in a life beyond the big mansions and private jets if they don't repent and turn to Christ. Finally, Piper says there's a prominence of self and a marginalisation of the greatness of God. Ask yourself, who seems to be the hero of the preacher's story? Is it himself or is it Jesus? Does his message seem to be a look at me, look how blessed I am message? Or is he brokenhearted over his sin? Is he humble and contrite? Does he model the sweetness of God's grace and magnify the brutal glory of the cross? Or does he exalt himself at the expense of Christ? They're nothing but frauds and charlatans who deceive the people. Thirdly, the false prophets and the wolves that I warned about last week have troubled and deceived the people of God from ancient times. The moral therapeutic deism and the prosperity gospel messages have been fairly recent problems, recent decades have taken hold, but the next one traces its roots back to the 1700s. It really got a foothold in the Christian church in the 20th century. It's become such a part of the Christian landscape that it's barely noticed anymore. That's the danger of liberalism, also known as progressive Christianity. Progressive Christianity essentially reinterprets the Bible and Christian doctrine and Christian practice in light of current social and political concerns and modern knowledge and experience. Elisa Childers, a former author and former member of the Christian girl group Zoe Girl, identifies five danger signs that the church may be drifting into or is already fully in the embrace of progressive Christianity. These signs apply to individual Christians too. And I've heard them from more Christians than I care to remember. Firstly, there's a lowered view of the Bible. In contrast to historic Christianity, progressive Christianity doesn't acknowledge the Bible as authoritative for life and for doctrine. Adherents will say things like, I believe the Bible contains the word of God, not that it is the word of God. Or the Bible is full of errors because it was written by ignorant men who were trying their best to understand who God was. Secondly, she says, feelings are emphasised over facts. Feelings take precedence over objective truth. In fact, there's no such thing as objective truth. You've all heard that. What is true for you may not be true for me. You hear things like, I just can't believe that Jesus would send good people to hell. Or that Bible verse just doesn't sit right with me. Or it doesn't really matter what you believe, as long as you're sincere. Thirdly, she says, essential Christian doctrines are open for reinterpretation. Progressive Christians are likely to redefine and reinterpret the Bible on hot-button 
moral issues like homosexuality and abortion, and on cardinal doctrines such as the virgin birth and the resurrection of the body. They say things like the idea of a literal hell is offensive. So non-Christians can't accept that. It needs to be reinterpreted. And the church's historic position on sexuality is archaic and it needs to be updated in a modern framework. Fourthly, she says that historic terms are redefined. While they'll often speak of the inspiration of scripture or the inerrancy or authority, what they mean by those terms is very different to what you and I would probably mean. They're rarely clearly explained. They're used as if we have common ground on this. If you can get them to define them, you'll very quickly realise that they mean something very different from the historic Christian understanding of inspiration and inerrancy. The Bible is inspired in the same way a good novel or a catchy song is inspired. They also redefine love to become a catch-all term for everything <coughs> excuse me, everything that's non-confrontative, it's a hard word, non-challenging, pleasant and affirming. God wouldn't punish sinners. God is love. It's not our job to tell anyone about sin. It's our job to just love them. Finally, she says that the heart of the gospel message shifts from sin and redemption to social justice. The Bible is pretty clear about the need to care for the poor, the downtrodden, the oppressed, the sick. No Christian can miss that if they're reading their Bible. But progressive Christianity makes that the main message of the gospel. People don't need to be forgiven of their sin. They don't need to be reconciled to God. They just need to be given the same opportunities as the lucky people, the wealthy people have. But since they've abandoned the true gospel, they also tend to reject any idea of a wrathful God, of the need to go to Christ for forgiveness, of the need for Christ to go to the cross. In fact, they find the whole idea of Christ's sacrifice to be embarrassing or even disgusting, cosmic child abuse, one author put it. Progressive Christianity has a low view of scripture. The Bible is useful, but not particularly important for living out your life. It's not life-changing. Nothing is out of bounds for progressive Christians to challenge or to change to suit their own opinions and beliefs. But what sort of arrogance concludes that we're the first generations in history to have worked out what God really meant when he wrote the Bible? The problem is if you no longer hold to the Bible as the source of unchanging truth, you have nothing for your faith to hang on to, nothing for your convictions to grasp, except the fickle, and ever-changing winds of public opinion. Mike Winger says that progressive theology is a voice of Satan. He's spot on. Progressive theology begins with the question, did God really say? And then it works over time to prove that God didn't really say that and to show that we moderns 
know what God meant better than he did. What arrogance these people have. But they're frauds and they're charlatans who deceive the people. Reinhold Niebuhr, the 20th century American theologian, stated that modern Christianity in pretty much all the forms we've looked at these two weeks preaches a God without wrath who brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through a Christ without a cross. That's modern Christianity. So much around the world. It's no wonder so many people preach this sort of message. It's a popular message. It's not a challenging message. It's so popular, it's almost a surefire strategy for church growth. But while it might make for big churches, it makes for very small Christians. It makes for Christians who are more concerned to be on the right side of history than to stand up for truth as revealed in God's holy word. It makes for Christians who are more concerned with how comfortable or happy they are in this life. Christians who want to hear vague prophetic words that they can bend to suit their own circumstances and their desires to make them feel good. It makes for Christians who are so captivated by conspiracy theories that they make a mockery of Christian faith and good sense. There's only one path of truth, and it's a narrow path. And that narrow path leads to a narrow door. It's not wide. There are not many ways in. In fact, Jesus said there's only one. Many who think they're on the right path will tragically find the door closed before them. When the time comes to give an answer for their lives, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Terrifying words. Whoever denies me before men, Jesus said, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. I suspect none of these deceivers or charlatans would think that they're denying Christ. I'm sure they all think they're upholding him, defending him, making him more relevant, making him more palatable, more accessible, less offensive. But the cross is offensive. Christ did come to bring us all. The gospel is scandalous when it's understood. The gospel tells us in unvarnished words that God is holy, that God cannot even look upon sin, that he is perfect. And so great is his perfection, he can have nothing to do with us. The gospel tells us that we are the opposite of God. We're broken, we're sinful, we're rebellious, we are enemies of God with no hope of reconciliation. 
Nothing we can say, nothing we can do can bridge that gap. It tells us that we all deserve eternal punishment, eternal death, and eternal banishment from the presence of God. And that, strangely, is good news. Because in the face of all these false prophets, in the face of these wolves, these greed mongers, and these self-help messages that leave you exhausted and without hope, there is hope. There is hope in the message of his holiness, our sinfulness. Because that's not the end of the message. The end of the message is that God the Father extended his love towards us. He sent his son Jesus to become a man for us as a representative for all humanity. And as a man, he faced the rejection and the enmity and the hatred of his fellow man. And eventually they nailed him to a cross, the very cross that these charlatans ignore or despise or reject. And on that cross, he carried the burden of sin, the burden of guilt and shame on behalf of every one of us as a representative of the human race. The wrath of God against sin was poured out on him. And he hung there until the fury of God was spent and he died with a cry, it is finished. It is finished. The third day again, he rose again from the dead as evidence that God the Father accepted the payment, accepted the penalty, the sacrifice on our behalf. That means, friends, that we have no more wrath left for us to face. If only we'll put our trust in what he has done. The only requirement is that we would believe. And even that he grants to us. When we do that, when we put our faith in this Jesus Christ that the Bible speaks so clearly of, so accurately about, when we do that, our sins are forgiven, our guilt is washed away, and our future is secured. And it all starts with the recognition that not a single one of us deserve it. He does it out of his boundless love and mercy. That, my friends, that is good news. That's the true and the only gospel. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for as a power of God to salvation. For Jews and for Greeks, for everyone who would put their trust in Christ. That's the gospel. Lord, I pray for my friends here today that you will keep them safe in your hands that you will keep their hearts fixed on you, Jesus. That every distraction, every lie that the devil whispers in their ear about you will be counted by truth 
It is written. It is written. It is written. Jesus, if it was good enough for you, it's got to be good enough for us. It is written. Lord, we will hold your word all the days of our lives. And Lord, I pray for our friends, our family, others who we may not even know yet, others who may hear this on the internet or wherever else, that you'll grant them that vision of your perfection, Jesus, your glory, your beauty, your desirability. Jesus, may you increase and we decrease. And we pray this in your precious name. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.